Oh, it was serious. Oh, I nearly yeah. died in the ambulance. It's a, it's a long story. But Did one you know? rattlesnake tried to kill me. 32 kept me alive. Hello, I'm Nipper Reed. And I'm Phil Wolf. So, settle down, have a nice cup of tea, and enjoy the Venomous Exchange Radio Podcast. Crumpets, Nipper. I want the crumpets. Well, as you've been such an extraordinarily good boy... Tonight, Venom Exchange Radio is so pleased and honoured to host an amazing guest, one of the most influential modern herpetologists, Professor of Herpetology at Wolverhampton University, Honorary Doctorate of Science from Wolverhampton University, past Chairman of the International Herpetological Society, Fellow of the Royal Geographical Society and the Explorers Club of New York, and most recently awarded the MBE. And for those of you not familiar with the UK award system, MBE stands for Member of the Meritorious Order of the British Empire. However, most of the people listening to this may know Mark from his massive influence in the groundbreaking TV show O'Shea's Big Adventure, as well as many of his books that he's written for us, such as Venomous Snakes of the World. So welcome to the show, Professor Mark O'Shea. Awesome to have you here, man. Super Thank stoked. you very much. <laughs> oh, so, Nipper, why don't you uh, kick this off for us? Well, I mean, I've had the honour of talking to Mark a number of times, and Mark's experiences in herpetoculture, particularly field herping, would fill an absolute series for us. So we thought we'd try and be a little bit, what's the word, logistical this evening. And oh, we're going to try... Target, that's a really good word. That's why you're a professor and I kick balls <laughs> in for a living. <laughs> um, so we're going to be targeted. Uh, so we're going to tr try and keep it to venomous and try and take you continent by continent. So mm -hmm. anything you want to talk about, but we're going to try and keep within those parameters. Because I know if we just listen to you, you can be talking about stuff and we will be fascinated and we'll be here in three weeks' time and I'll have wet myself. We can't do that. I've got a conference to run in between. Okay, let's get that in right now. Do you want to quickly talk about the conference? Yeah, yeah, I will briefly, yes. Um, we were invited at the University of Wolverhampton, where, where I'm based, we were invited to host the 22nd um, European Congress of Herpetology, which is... Um, wow run by the Societas Europea Herptologica, which is like the pan-European herptological society. And um, we, we were actually invited to do this while we were in Belgrade, Serbia, at the 21st last September, because they were trying to get back into Kilta. Um, they're normally, um, they're normally uh, on uh, the 23rd, yeah, they're normally on the odd years. So not to clash with the World Congress. And because of COVID, it had all thrown it all out. So there was only a one-year gap to the 22nd, and we agreed to do it. And it's been um, quite a, an experience setting up a conference. I've never done it before, nor had my colleagues. Well, one had done some uh, conference work. And it has been. There's so many things involved in it. But we'll be running um, three parallel sessions with uh, subjects such as... Um, 
um, museums in, in an age of global um, extinction, um, rewilding, um, uh, diseases, all sorts of aspects of herpetology. And we've got some very good speakers coming. I think we've got folks, delegates from 24 countries signed up at the moment. And we're running that in the Springfield campus at the University of Wolverhampton um, from the 4th to the 8th of September. And um, the Springfield campus is, it was an old brewery uh, that burnt down and they've spent, I think, £125 million refurbishing it as, as the School of wow. Architecture and Built Environment. And it's a, it's, it's a wonderful mixture of old and new, fantastic place to hold a conference, um, lovely, great atrium with old and new, where we do the poster sessions, the icebreaker and things like that. So we're really looking forward to it. But it would be a great relief when it's over. And, and on the Saturday following it, um, I'm taking a, a tour to Shrewsbury, um, some of the delegates to do the Darwin Walk, um, because, of course, um, where Charles Darwin was born is only a short distance from where I am now, and it's not far from Wolverhampton. So we're going... Um, to do the Darwin walk and go to uh, um, visit the actual bedroom where he was born in the Mount House. So it's quite a big, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a, it, and, and the, the SEH conference hasn't been in the UK since 9, September 1989 um, when um, it took place during the World Congress of Herpetology down in Canterbury, Kent. And um, I, I attended that one as a steward. I was... Um, that was my first big international conference, and now here I am running the next one. So, yeah, it's that's, it's very exciting. But registration has closed. I'm afraid people can't buy tickets now. That's all been that's all closed. But the next one is likely will be in Germany in two years' time, and the World Congress is in Borneo next year. Wow. Um, will wow. any of that be on live stream or any kind of network? Um, in? I don't know. I mean, over time, I would think that will occur. I don't know if that's going to happen from Cooching Borneo for the World Congress. I mean, there's been 10 World Congresses and I've, I attended the first five and I've, and I've missed the others, unfortunately. Um, so this will be the first one that I get back to. Um, they're not generally because you because you've usually got more than one session. You have three symposiums running at the same time and people select what they want to go into just doors away. Wow. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty intense. And then that's only 50% of it. 50% of anyone who's been to a reptile meeting in Europe or the US or anywhere, like I used to go to the NARBC shows. Um, those were reptile shows. We won't have any livestock. Um, it's not a reptile show. It's, it's, right. it's a purely symposium. Yeah, symposium. But... Um, but the networking is 50% of it because you're meeting people, old friends, you're making new friends. And for us, we've got people looking for researchers to join their projects and people looking for projects to join. So it's a great intermeshing. And so the networking is as important as the actual uh, presentations and the posters. So it's great fun. But as I say, um, I will need to lie down when it's over. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Anyway, um, crack on. So now we know about the conference, let's just try and get some of your experiences out for people because I know, you know, most of us that listen to this podcast all grew up with O'Shea's Big Adventure and it inspired so many of us. There's, there's no two ways about it. it. It was groundbreaking. It was realistic. It wasn't TV faff like other 
shows around the time. So it wasn't staged. It was. It, it was wasn't genuine. That was that was the golden rule. That it was, was genuine. That was the golden rule. And when I broached that to the executives, they were horrified. Well, um, be, because you didn't know if you're going to get a film out of it. Um, I think that has stood the test of time where other things haven't. Um, you know, there, there was, you know, there was other counterparts at the time, which were yes, all... but there were other counterparts at the time, one of whom was no no longer here, who yeah. was a great advocate for conservation of reptiles yeah. and amphibians and did a tremendous amount of good. Yeah, 100%. However, in a more enlightened age, it, you know, with more, you know, field herping becoming much more popular and, you know, everyone having access to YouTube and putting their stuff on as it actually happens, I think your show the original shows still stand the test of time because of the realism it, yeah. you know everybody knows it wasn't staged and i think the credibility of that is, is the beauty of it um obviously we'll like to see you crawl around in muck and whatever but the credibility of it was the fact that it wasn't staged it didn't matter if you didn't find anything right well because it because we felt we, we felt we was there with you yeah to give you an example when I did the film looking for Salvador's monitor lizard in New Guinea, that was in the second season, and there were only half-hour films then. So there's only so much you could put into that from what you found. And I was rather relieved when we didn't find it, because it meant the little python I had found, which was an, um, the first anteresia ever recorded from New Guinea, didn't end up on the cutting room floor. If I'd found Salvador's monitor lizard, the directors and the editors, would have cut that python out completely because it wasn't big. Now I made this. I, I, my other maxim was it doesn't have to be big or dangerous to be an O'Shea target species. Even small species can be. They just have to have an interesting story, and that's why I made films about green-blooded skinks in New Guinea that yeah. literally bleed green, really alien, and I made a film about a luminous lizard in Trinidad that hadn't been seen since 1938. You know, these things are three inches long, but they're no less fascinating than a Komodo dragon or a, a, a King Cobra. No, that, that, was one of my, that was one of my favourite episodes. The Little Skink was one of my favourite episodes. Yeah, yeah. I still and, remember it. One, one so, that always stood out to me was when you went with down to find the Hoplocephalus, Hoplocephalus, excuse me, and you guys took the helicopter to the ridge and there was nothing on the ridge, and like it was, it was heart wrenching. Yeah, it was also fascinating at the same time. Yes, it was because those ridges in the, I mean, to set the scene, those are ridges in the Blue Mountains, um, and that that's the the uh, Hoplocephalus, um, the broad headed snake is um, lives in a, a rock on rock environment, never a rock on soil. So it lives underneath exfoliated rocks, which is a great term, exfoliated. It's what the Daleks used to say, exfoliate. Um, but that might not cross the channel so well. Um, but um, they live under exfoliated rock, but not exfoliated rock that's on soil. So they're not back where the tree line is and the grass is growing. They're out on the very, very edge. And we we did find them, obviously, on where we started working, because working, we I was with John O'Webb, and he, he knew where he'd seen specimens and we were going up and finding some that he could uh, run his um, pit tag uh, over and, and recognize. But it is a snake in trouble 
And yet there are loads of ridges in the Blue Mountains. And you think, well, OK, if it was to disappear from here, not through collection, but more through people collecting bushrock for their gardens. There are signs by the road say bushrock collecting is illegal. Just like if you go through um, Arizona, they have signs saying collecting Sagaro cactus is illegal. You know, they're protecting the environment. But we thought they'll be on the other ridges that people can't get to. But the ones we checked, they weren't. Now you go, well, why not? Possibly fire. Possibly fire. And let's face it, they have a lot of wildfires. If fire destroyed a population, how is it going to reestablish? Where is it going to reestablish from? And so the picture looked uh, more severe for that species than, than we may have thought of beforehand. Yeah, very, very reminiscent of um, of some of the, the, the Sky Island lepidus that we have in the southwest here. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you have one. Yeah, I know. I, I, I've spent time up on those sky islands. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, if you destroy all the, the wildlife above a certain, it only, it only occurs at a certain elevation, it's not going to recruit from anywhere because there's yeah. no, they're not, they're not, they are islands um, and they're hard to reach. So, yeah. yes, it, it, is a, it is a big concern. And it's something that all of us who, who value biodiversity, um, need to think about yeah and you see that nipper next time we go to the skylands we need a helicopter just to oh, make yeah. it you know oh, yes. real quick need to travel in helicopters <laughs> at that time. now <laughs> i'm going to pin you down now we've now we are um yeah. we've got you so you mentioned sky islands so let's talk about what venomous herping field herping or research have you done in the u.s then <clears throat> well i've spent quite a lot of time in the u.s but not so much doing uh, going specifically for field herping if i've gone across for a reptile show or to give a lecture or something like that the the host um herb society like to take me out into the field and um and that's really good fun um i remember going out with some the guys from the kansas herb society and um we we, we it was I, i'm trying to think I don't, we must have finished making big adventure because I never had any time to do this sort of thing when I was doing Big Adventure. But can't have been long after that because we had two journalists from the newspapers tag on and follow us. We're catching garter snakes and copperheads and things like that. And we've got two journalists in tow writing articles about going herping with Mark O'Shea in in Kansas or Missouri, which was quite bizarre. That's incredible. You know, and you sort of take... And we were, we were on a, a railway line. We'd parked up and we we're down on the railway line looking for decay snakes. And when we came back up to the cars, the state trooper was there and he wasn't too pleased with the way we parked our cars. Well, when I walked up, he recognized me and he wanted a selfie. Really? <laughs> so it That's diffused, incredible. It diffused the situation completely. That's incredible. So, yes. We need to be recognised more, Phil, because we do get a lot of attention from state troopers when we're out we, night cruising. That we do. Like that. State, state troopers and border patrol this, with those reflective oh, yeah. vests. Uh, <laughs> well, if, you, if, you, if you're driving the roads in southern Arizona, um, five out of every eight cars you see is, is a border patrol. And they did stop us once. I was there with Wolfgang Wooster and David uh, Nixon. And 
he, he pulled us over and he said, what are you doing? Are you snake? And he realized we must be snake hunting. When, when he asked us, none of us spoke with an American accent, um, a German and two Brits. He, he, um, he, he, he realized we were, we were looking for snakes. And uh, he said, you're doing all the things that raise red flags because they've got those great big masts and they're in cars covered so they can view the screen and they're, they're watching. And he says, you're doing everything that we watch for. You're driving slowly. You're stopping repeatedly. You're getting out and walking to the edge of the road and looking under bushes. <laughs> so, yes, we, it did look like suspicious. But, yeah, it diffused again. Oh, there was a very, very funny story. I was out with Bob Ashley and some of the guys um, south south of uh, the Shirakawa Desert Museum. And um, we caught a Western Diamondback, and I wanted to photograph the Western Diamondback. And they wanted to carry on field herping, so they left me with my camera bag and my hat and the rattlesnake and a snake hood and a torch on a little lay-by by the side of the road in the desert. And I'm just getting down to just photographing what for anyone there is a pretty boring rattlesnake. But yeah, I've photographed lots of Western Diamondbacks, but I just like this one. I wanted to photograph it. And they'd all yeah. gone off. And I think the first person, the first vehicle to turn up was the sheriff. What are you doing? I'm photographing a rattlesnake. Where's your car? I haven't got one. But you're miles from anywhere. Yes, I know. I got dropped off my friends. Oh, don't you think that's a bit dangerous? Well, yeah, it could be, but that's all fine. Anyway, he went. Next up was state troopers. They got out. They're talking to me. I'm thinking I'm never going to get this rattlesnake photograph. <laughs> Third car was Border Patrol. And they're yeah. chatting to me. And then they had to go. They got a call. There's some. There's somebody. They've got to go and arrest. So they took off in real fast and left me. Fourth car, group of herpers. They got again. <laughs> Mark O'Shea, what are you doing here? <laughs> Imagine being that fourth car. I, I, I can't fathom that. I can't fathom just driving down the highway and all of a sudden seeing, you know, this this guy with a blue snake hook and a brown cowboy hat. You, on the side of the highway. Australian hat. Oh, well, forgive me, forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's yes, it's it. I I I was on um, the M40 runs from Birmingham to London, and I was going down to London with my partner one time, and I just pulled in, and at that time when I was working for the Safari Park, West Midlands Safari Park, and I drove a um, a Camel Trophy um, Discovery, and it had got West Midlands Safari Park on the wheel and all of that and marco right. shea um curator of reptiles on the front and stuff and i just pulled in and this guy this vehicle pulled up alongside and these five british lads got out and they go i don't believe it we spent six months on holiday in australia and we come back home and here you are and i said <laughs> that's because i'm british are you <laughs> <laughs> that's great that's awesome <laughs> so have you seen many of the uh Kratlis in the u.s yes i've seen quite a few species um christ if i was to list them i've seen i have seen a lot um atrox adamantius um 
I did. We did a film on Horridus, of course, which we called Nemesis because it was it was um, a species that had almost switched my lights out in 1993 um, after a very bad bite. Yeah. Was, where, where, where did you get? Not where on you? Whereabouts in the US? At the safari park, fortunately. Oh, if I'd been park. bitten in the field by that, I wouldn't be here. Right. It was oh. a, a female as fat as Maris, prey taking bite when I was feeding the male. And she'd manoeuvred, and I never saw the strike, never saw it. Um, all I saw was her. I felt something light brush my wrist. And I was using um, tongs and everything with the mail, but she was off to the, and she'd manoeuvred. And it was a hell of a strike across the distance, right across my field of vision. I felt something brush my wrist, didn't feel any pain or anything, but she was resetting her fangs. So that meant she'd, she'd done something. And I looked at my wrist. And I turned it over and looked at the underside and there was a nice big D of the teeth of the lower jaw. So you knew the upper jaw had contact. He turned it back and then two blood spots came up an inch apart. And I knew it was going to be bad because she was obviously hungry because I was feeding them. And so I locked them all up and got the antivenom and drove to the, the main office because I didn't have a phone. I got a phone in there soon afterwards, believe me and me. But um, and raised the alarm, and I came to with paramedics working on me. Oh, it was serious. Wow. I nearly yeah. died in the ambulance. It's a, it's a long story. But Did one you know? rattlesnake tried to kill me. 32 kept me alive. Wow. Now, that'll puzzle you. Yeah, right. Um, at you, that time, there were 32 species of rattlesnakes. I know the numbers change. A species <laughs> are synonymized, a new species are described. And species that were subspecies are elevated. But there were 32 at the time in the two genera. And um, people do memory tests. It's always a good idea. You know, I can do the states of the United States. It's not difficult. You know, the, um, the, the, the states of Brazil, etc. And I used to just challenge myself to remember things like this. And one of the ones I used to do was the 32 species of rattlesnakes in Latin. Um, and I know that I will get to 29 really quite quickly. And then I'll think, I know there's another one begins with M and there's another one begins with so-and-so. And, and I'll, I'll be trying to work them out and I'll get annoyed with myself because I can't remember them. And when I knew that if I went to sleep in the ambulance, I was going to die and I knew I had to stay conscious. Um, I, uh, I did that and I was still trying to figure the last one when they wheeled me off into the hospital. The funny thing was that I actually watched that too. I watched that from above. I watched myself being taken off the ambulance, past the police motorcycle outriders that had escorted it on a bank holiday, and past my parents and into the hospital. I had an out-of-body experience. So I think I was pretty close. Um, that, that wow. was the worst one. So when we decided to make a film about timber rattlesnakes, which are, is a species in dire need of help, um, it got called Nemesis because it nearly was mine. Um, wow. Um, they're, they're, they're still my favourite North American rattlesnake. Well, them and blacktails. I do like blacktails as well. And I've kept blacktails and I've found blacktails in the wild and found a really interesting blacktail in Mexico, which should have been, it was in the range of the Basiliscus, but it was... It keyed out to me to a blacktail. Very, very odd. Somebody told me along this, he says, oh, there's a boa constrictor lives. This is in Sonora, Mexico. 
around Alamos where you can't go now because of the narco traficantes. But he says in that cliff, there's a, there's a boa constrictor lives in that hole. So I climbed up and I'm working my way along to find this jiboa. I'm looking straight at a rattlesnake looking at me. And I thought, your, your snake identification is not great. But I caught it. And um, I thought, oh, this looks like a black tail, but it's just too close to the coast for the range. So mm, I've got photographs of it. So it might be it might it might be a hybrid between Basiliscus and Molossus. I don't know. Yeah, I got two. I got two on that. Did it look like a Basiliscus with a brown with like a black tail or? Yeah, it got a black more... tail. Yeah, it had. Yeah. But it was it was it was it it. If you'd put it in front and said, what's that? You'd have gone, oh, it's a molossus. You might not have said which subspecies. Oh, Oaxarchus, of course, has been elevated now. Um, um, you might not have said uh, negressums or molossus, molossus, but you'd, you'd have gone molossus. And, 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 and it shouldn't have been. But then, well, who knows? But, yeah, I've, I found plenty of rattlesnakes when we were in Mexico. Although... We drove the full length of Baja California film when we were filming there, and it was moonlight all the bloody way. And I got one roadkill Enyo. Damn. You know, and that's that is. I went down there. I went down there with Lee Grisma, and you know that's that's. Yeah. It should be any number, but it just proves you won't find snakes on moonlit nights. Yeah. Yeah. Or crops. Well, how how big was the Enyo? Hmm? How large was the Enyo that you found? Small. Well, they are small snake, but it was small, okay. and it it had been run over. Um, so that 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 was it. Um, well, despite it not being venomous, any bogartophus while you were down there? Uh, no. no, 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 no. But we did get um, we did go out to the islands and found Estamanensis. Nice. Um, and um, uh, uh, the rattle snake Catalinensis. We found three of those. Very cool. All females. Um, what else? So working off the roads at night turned up rattlesnakes, but but not actually road cruising. And that would have been a great road. The, for me, you know, the, the best thing that we found down there, Lee turned up with at the very end, right down at the tip. Bipes biporus, the amphispinian that looks like a penis with arms. <laughs> the Mexicans have some very odd views about those. I know somebody who's, who's done work down there and was looking for them. The Mexicans thought he was a pervert because <laughs> they, do, they believe that they do crawl up your anus. Oh. So, I've, only, um, I've only seen them in captivity. I think they look amazing. They are in mate, yeah. <laughs> I I have a fascination for fossorial species more than venomous. Yes. Anything amphisbanians, um uh Sicilians, which my co colleague Simon Maddock works on. Um I'm gonna just leave you to talk to Phil because <laughs> Phil's big love in life is fossorial snakes. Oh yeah. He just I, has it, a collection of dirt in drawers as far yes, as Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. I don't have a collection of anything these days. Um, it's not been practical. But people say to me, if you could keep something, what would you have? Well, I think if I was going to have something that was visible, it would probably be monkey tail skinks because I've always loved them and I've kept them before and I've bred them. I might have. A, 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 but, but if I was going to keep snakes, 
I don't think it'd be green tree pythons. I think it'd be something you couldn't see. Yeah. Because I would want to find out a way of monitoring something about his natural history that would ultimately be publishable. You see and that nipper? So you see hmm? that? You see that nipper? Uh, so, so, but Mark, I have a very small collection of Atractaspis from West Africa. Oh, you! Oh, and, yeah, I love those. Not and I, uh, <laughs> you slip that knot in there right at the end. The uh, and everyone makes fun of me for my containers full of dirt. Yes, but I am logging every bit of information that I can observe. Fascinating, and it's been a hell of a two years watching piles of dirt. I'll tell you that. Yes, yes, but I can't and, get enough and, of it. And the point is that the, there is a simple. Um, way of responding to your detractors, ask them to pick up a handful and let it run through their fingers. Exactly, exactly. Because <laughs> I know yeah. what that feels like. Well, we're not onto Africa so, yet. So, Mike, <laughs> we're, we're not on Africa, but I will, I will say this before before we digress too much and we slip more into the Americas. So, my friends and I that do keep fossorial stuff, you know, centipede eaters and uh, yeah, calabar yeah, yeah. pythons and some of the other yeah, yeah. small, I mean, yeah. myself, I have a, a macrolapse as well, but um oh really all, yeah i do yeah I, I don't i don't i need to get more information because it's i don't think i'm keeping it right but again we'll say that for africa but uh yeah i've only, we, I've only ever caught one excellent well i definitely have to hear about that but we mm -hmm. call it the dirt mafia so anybody who keeps fossorial stuff you are now part of the dirt snake mafia just dirt so, snake, so yeah. you're an honorary member sir thank you it's it's <laughs> that is that is a group that I, I feel that is so overlooked generally because, yeah. well, I guess the, the the reptile shops, they put them in, put a pile of dirt and a snake in the cage. People just walk past it thinking he's cleaning. Yeah. Um, you haven't got to be able to see it. And, yeah. and you see, what I'd like to be able to do is find some way of keeping something in um, some form of, I, I think you can do it now, like small beads where you can wow. actually monitor the way it's crawling. The late, great Carl Gans spent a lot of time working on fossorial species and particularly on shield tails, which another group that fascinate me from South India and Sri Lanka. And the way that they burrow and move forwards is fascinating. You know, they've got a pointed head and they push forwards and make a narrow hole in the earth. And then they draw the body forwards to widen the gap. And the whole um, vertebrae corkscrewed then and then they'll per get a purchase and push forwards again and all the time the shield tail is blocking the exit with dirt on the, on, wow. the, on the hooks so I mean these sort of adaptations are really interesting and if if people were doing the same sort of observations on fossorial species that they that they do very well on arboreal species and terrestrial species and so forth we'd be learning a lot because a lot is learned and published by the private community of serious herpetoculturalists who spend a lot of their money and even more of their time observing their animals when often that's not possible for um, more, certainly zoo herpetologists and people like that where they've got to manage a, a public collection and things. So there is, there is so much input that could come from the private community. The serious, awesome. I'm not talking pet keep, but I'm talking yeah. serious, the serious uh, the culturalists. Absolutely. It's I think you need to send Mark a t shirt that says Dirt Snake Mafia. It's going to happen. Oh, I, I will wear it. I will Absolutely. wear it. I will lecture to my students wearing it and get you a photograph. 
Excellent. Excellent. Awesome. Yes. It's in the works. So um, Back to the Americas, Nipper. Sorry. Back to the Americas. I know we've diverted a little bit over the border into Mexico. We'll, Mexico we'll you... is North America. We'll Excuse me. Um, South America starts the Isthmus of Tecuantepec. See, Phil? I told you. I, well, um, I see in my mind. Southern, there are three Mexican states. I think it's three that, that are, that are um, Latin America, South America, really, because Middle America or Central America, or what you want to call it, is a bit of a construct. You've got it's you've got the near Arctic and 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 South America colliding. That isthmus is there. Now the isthmus take you anti Everything north of that should be North America. Everything south of that should be South America. See, I right. just figured we, we started the stories in Kansas, then we went to Arizona, now we're in Mexico. I'm just I'm just letting him go south. Yeah, <laughs> I might yeah. surprise you and sort of turn now because I was up catching. Uh, I was talking about uh, timber rattlesnakes, and we went to some um, fantastic dens up in um, um, in Wisconsin. And oh, wow. I went out with Steve Bro Prey, who'd got in in Arkansas, um, who who'd got a fantastic method of of um, uh, his his uh, rattlesnakes. Um, with their radio tracking devices and everything, were actually beaming every time they were in line of sight. They would beam all the information wow. um, to to uh, a data collector that he got in a, a locked unit on the hillside. And we were out, and he knew where every he knew where all these snakes were. That was fascinating. I mean, what you the guys are doing in the states monitoring snakes. I, I wish we could do that in a lot of other parts of the world. Fantastic, and I, I bet it's come on. Come on, that's twenty years ago, for God's sake. Yeah, it's got got to be fresh now. Oh, I'll tell you a funny story, another one. But it is when we've been out with Steve Beaupre, right? Um, we've got about four SUVs, five SUVs. Steve Beaupre and his students, myself and my film crew, and we're going to be out throughout the day and and into the early evening. Um. And um, so we're wearing the usual stuff you wear in the field, which tends to be a bit camo, a bit of a mix match. And um, we we were racing back to Little Rock in a row of cars, and we pulled in for petrol for, for gas. And we're buying gas, and this girl who'd been uh, buying gas and had just gone in and paid came over to me and said. Um, your covers slipped. I said, excuse me? What do, you, what do you mean? And she recoiled when she heard my accent. She expected me to be an American. And she said, um, your, your, your covers slipped. And she started pointing at one of the vehicles. She says, um, my father's a colonel in the National Guard. Um, I, he, he'd want me to tell you your, your covers slipped. And then she... She was obviously put off because she thought it was some sort of joint operation. And she beat her back to it and she drove away. And I thought, what's she talking about? I walked over to the car and it was one the director um, <laughs> and uh, was it driving. And he'd taken off his sweatshirt and he'd thrown it in the back. And it was up against the window. And you could just read some of the writing. And it said, FBI, Federal Bureau of Intoxication but you couldn't see the intoxication part. <laughs> and great. she must have really thought that we were some out doing something. We were a, an FBI and British security unit operating <laughs> covertly 
in Arkansas. <laughs> and I suddenly great. realized why she was, and when she heard my, why she recoiled when she heard my accent and it wasn't American. She thought she'd walked into something bigger than, than she could cope with. And she was gone. And she's probably still telling the story to this day. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So I was going, what about coral snakes? Phil and I love a coral snake. So do I. So do I. And on that occasion when I was photographing the Western Diamondback, um, Bob Ashley and the other lads did remember to come back for me. And they had caught what I most wanted to see, which is Micaroides urizanthus. They're Excellent. beautiful. Excellent. And I wanted to obviously photograph this. And of course, they're not easy snakes to photograph because they hide their heads as soon as shine a torch at them. Oh, so I figured, really I figured sorry, they are, yeah, I couldn't do this there by the side of the road. So we went back to the um, motel room and I went into the bathroom and I put a plug in the bath and I built a set in the bath and I got it, turned the light off and got in. I got a little mini mag light. Excellent. Just with, um, you know, you can um, have it so it's a candle. It looks like a right. And I got that. And that was just sh throwing enough light for me to just be able to see. And I got the coral snake and I set him up on the, on, on, on the, on the set in, 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 in the bath. And I got superlative photos, and he wasn't hiding in, in, uh, at all. And awesome. the next time I was over there, they got another one, and I, I got great tail curl. Oh, really? And, um, yes, I wish I could have photographed the cloacal popping, because I have to say, that did not frighten me one bit. I do <laughs> not think that a coral snake farting is really going to be a good defense. No, no. Well, Nipper and I had the the pleasure of of finding one on our trip to our most recent trip to Arizona, and uh, we did not hear the the cloacal farting. Excuse me, but uh, but a couple of the other you know guys. You know what we call that, did. incidentally? Do you know what farting is over here? What's that, sir? Um, and it has been for far longer than it was seen relevant. What do you trumping? Got? Trumping. <laughs> Excellent. Nipper's nodding. He's a Brit. <laughs> That's cool. anyway. Carry on. No, I was just saying this. I feel like it's such a uh, misunderstood and and very few people appreciate it. And then the people don't realize how difficult it is to really find one and see one. And what an honor it is to be a member of that club in itself. You know. Yeah. That, yeah. Well, I haven't found either of the two that I've photographed, so I still have to find one. But when I was um, in South America, I was working for the Royal Geographical Society in 1987-88 on a big project in the north of the Amazon in, a, in what was then a territory, the territory of Horaima. It's now a state. I was there when um, they had um, they, they found gold and there was a mad gold rush and people were flying in. They were crashing planes in the jungle to go and gold mine and stuff. It turned, it changed the place. It got quite dangerous. Somebody shot the mayor, all sorts of things. Um, and, and they had new elections. And I was walking down the street one day and they got vote so-and-so, vote so-and-so, obviously in Portuguese. And one of the candidates had said, vote Hitler. I wish we had 
little wow. cameras that we could have taken a picture because I hadn't got my cameras. And it, that's the kind of thing you would definitely pull out your camera phone and take. Of course. Although Hitler. Hitler was running. There was a Hitler in the 1980s running for mayor of um, Borvista. Wow. Um, so that's bizarre. And it tied in with a, a guy I, I met in Honduras in 1985, who I think actually was um, SS. But that's another story. Um, while I was working on that project out on, on this island in the jungle, uh, uh, the Ile de Maracar, uh, 100,000 hectares, I did catch a couple of coral snakes. I got Lemniscatus, but I think it was Lemniscatus diuteus, which is now a full species, I think. And I got Hemprichi. Um, oh. But I spent seven months on that project in the jungle, five wow. months in the wet season, two months in the dry season. I recorded um, 32 or 33 species of snakes, um, pre, uh, fewer lizards, but I still, and, and quite a lot of frogs. But how was the Hembrickii? I, I mean, I've never seen one in person. Pr a very pretty, pretty little snake, but yeah. I couldn't keep them for long because I hadn't, I wasn't trying to keep them. I was photographing, documenting. And, and in those days, I was doing very little museum collecting. Um, so, they they were being documented and released back in the reserve. Excellent. Um, yeah, that's. But I've seen so few. Even when I was in Central America, I didn't see many many coral snakes. Um, uh, Nigrisinctus in Honduras. Um, trying to think. Trying to think. I'm trying to remember. Oh. There was a a photo in one of your books of I think Cernamensis. You know, with the, with yeah, the that's not face. my photo. Yeah, oh, okay. that is a very now. Who was I talking to only a couple of days ago? Let me think. Was it Nick Vidal or Patrick David? Because I've just been working in the Paris Museum, Excellent. and um, I went out for a, a beer with Nick Vidal. And we, yes, I think it was Nick Vidal. And he was talking about his love of Micrurus and Surinamensis, especially. Um, yeah. and how he, yes, it was because he, he's found them in. French Guiana. He's found quite a few corals in French Guiana. People don't appreciate. They don't. When you see the when you see the coral snakes in North America, Fulvius and Tenere and 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 Eurizanthus, you start thinking that coral snakes are small. This Surinamensis is a two meter thumping great coral snake. Easily, you could you could put your finger down its throat. Not that I'd recommend you did that, but there right. you go. Well, my the good friend snake. and I, my good friend and I had one that was probably about, oh, I don't know, maybe two and a half, almost three foot, almost a meter, and yep. Uh, yep. and we wound up getting it to eat some frozen thawed snakes after we had soaked them, and we gave it a big basin. It never swam. It it never really water. Yeah. The aquatic bit, but yeah. they, they're supposed to eat eels as well, aren't they? Yeah, well, we, we got probably about four or five snakes in it naturally on its own in terms of just using a hemostat to simulate the, the moving of the cadaver. And uh, and it, it ate four or five, and then it just slowly went downhill, probably because it was stress and parasites and whatever else. But yeah. incredible animals. Incredible. Yeah, if, if we get to talking about the Pacific, I'll tell you about the most parasitized snakes that I've seen in museums, which are from that. But, yes, I mean, uh, coral snakes aren't all the same diet some are very very specific you know some mm -hmm. specialize um uh Hemprichis, i think feeds on um uh, peripatus um yeah on, on um the, there are several that feed on primarily on sicilians uh so there there are some pretty uh specialized and you'd have to have 
Because if you've got an area with four or five coral snakes in, in tropical America, there's this little thing called resource partitioning, which was a, the first paper I ever read on that was by Christine Toft in Copia. And it was published in 78 or 80 or something. And it, and it really got me thinking when I was in the field, because if you have two species that do exactly the same thing in exactly the same place at exactly the same time, they're going to compete. Therefore, if one has just a 0.1 percentage advantage over the other species over time, and we've had plenty of it leading up to now, that one will have pushed the other one out. It'll have outcompeted it. Therefore, species that are closely related, existing in the same habitat, have either got to be active at different times, active in different locations, like with Candoya, you get an arboreal one, terrestrial one. They've got to be feeding on different prey or different size classes of prey. These sort of things are really, really important. And, and this resource partitioning sets you thinking when you're looking at very diverse um, assemblages of snakes, how are they all existing without tripping over each other, metaphorically speaking, of course. Right, right. We've actually, uh, uh, my friends and I have discussed this, where certain areas of the southeastern United States, you'll have a, a small area of land that you'll find copious amounts of Regina, and then right next to it will be Tantilla, but you'll never find regina where tantilla are and vice versa and then if you add micurus in there well you won't find regina or tantilla because the micurus is most likely eating them both but 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 the but the tantilla and the, the regina are partitioning the habitat there right and and i think this, like i work on toxicalamus in new guinea which is an elapid that eats earthworms oh yeah we're going to talk about that later for yeah sure. we are but but i was going to just say that the vogel cop of new i mean i've looked at all the known specimens in museums now i'm about 16 short wow. of the 528 wow um there've been none recorded from the vogel cop the bird's head of new guinea because depending if you're a herpetologist or an ornithologist you see new guinea as a sleeping monitor lizard or a sleeping bird and he's right. got a head and a tail. Well, generally, the Vogel cop that means bird's head, and that's the big Western um, peninsula. And I've no Toxicocalamus records from there, but I do have Calamophis records from there, which is a homolopsid, terrestrial fangless homolopsid, yeah, that eats earthworms. And I've I've now actually seen all of the known specimens in museums of come uh, Calamophis, and I found three that people have got as brachiorus oh, so wow. uh, you know um so i've actually increased there are now nine specimens known in collections there were only six before i started poking around in museum jars but yeah they're not to, they're not in the same place because presumably they would compete right yeah so we'll allow you so you've gone through mexico now we're going to allow you Central America. You're after me SS story, aren't you? I am after that. It does sound like an amazing story. I can't <laughs> That's lie. good. That's so good. I was, on a, I was on an expedition, an Operation Raleigh expedition in 1985. Um, and I was running um, the Herp survey for three months on this project. And we got youngsters. Operation Raleigh was something done in, in, in the... Um, in the 80s for 
youngsters between 17 and 24 to do adventurous scientific and community challenges, multinational. I mean, I had two Omanis on my team, desert Arabs on my team in Honduras and various others. And um, I was running a hurt project, which involved obviously surveying what we were finding around the coastal area where we were based, but also patrols into the jungle, um, sometimes for 10 days and things like that, carrying everything. And um, this village we were staying in um, was very infrequently visited from anyone from outside. But there was a German, an elderly German living there, and he said his name was Hermann Bock. And Herman was married to um, a very young black Garifuna girl, local girl. And he didn't speak Garifuna or claim not to. And she didn't speak um, German. And you could tell which was his house because it was the one with the razor wire around the fence. So anyway, I got talking to him because he was interested in what I was doing. And he wanted me. He'd got a little private island off the coast and he wanted me to pretend to release snakes on the island. He didn't want me to actually release snakes on the island because he wanted to go there, but he didn't want the Garifuna going there. So he wanted me to make out that I was releasing all the venomous snakes I was catching That's hilarious. on this island. Right. But finding out a bit about him, um, he had come up to Honduras where he was an expert in Amerindian art. And he, he was the Minister of Tourism for an area with zero tourism. And he'd been there a long time and he'd come up from Paraguay. And he had gone to Paraguay from Germany at some speed in the 1940s. So was he fleeing from before the rise or after the fall? But he was just he was he was about 60 when I met him in 1985. So we'll do the math. I reckon I reckon Herman was hiding from something. <laughs> very cool. Very, very, very interesting story. I love it. That's I can't awesome. prove it, but he's dead now anyway. <laughs> yeah. So have you done much helping in Central America? What venomous... Uh, yes, I have. I've, I've been to Honduras, Belize, um, Costa Rica. Um, yeah, that's it in Central America. I've done. I've been to more countries in South America. I've been to Venezuela, Guyana, Peru, Brazil, Trinidad, um, Argentina. Um, that's probably, yeah. To say Venezuela, yeah. So, but yeah, I, I, Costa Rica is obviously the mecca. Um, it's the mecca not just because it's got such a diverse herbert of fauna, because it's it's right where the overlap zone between northern and southern faunas overlap, plus all the stuff that is very very Central American in its its distribution. But it's also the the country most set up for. Western tourism, if you like, um, you know, English is is very often spoken, whereas you go to many other Latin American countries, less so. Even Belize, which was British Honduras, um, that's not set up for tourism at all. Uh, I didn't spend much time in Belize, but I had a late friend of mine spent a lot of time in Belize and, and caught some very interesting species there. But 
I, I, I just I was out on the keys catching iguanas and things like that. But 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 Costa Rica is 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 excellent. Um, whether you're going to find much new, well, if you were looking for something new there, you'd need to go up the mountains, and very likely there are undescribed um, frogs, um, uh, microteids, um, vipers, and so forth on the mountains. So you'd need to move away from the coast where everyone seems to go. And it is not easy to find Bushmasters there. And I haven't. <laughs> yeah. I feel like so many people go to Costa Rica for all the reasons you just said. But there's a small group that really, really wants to find La Quisas. And I, I, I just, they're fascinating to me, but I feel like there's so many other amazing localities and other species that in south america that yes you you could on. spend you could spend a lot of time looking for um the cases on 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 the Osa peninsula and come back disappointed yeah and 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 not have seen a lot of other species you find the cases when the time's right and i mean i caught one in the atlantic coastal forest of brazil and that was awesome. very exciting and that was the first film of a, a big adventure and um the late dean reaper wrote um uh, that we'd set it up and we really? were well pissed because we absolutely went by my rule golden rule and we'd spent 10 days in three states looking for um the atlantic coastal bushmaster and being unsuccessful and it was the last day and we're searching in quebrangulu in bahia state and again no luck and we're thinking of packing down because we're flying out the next day. And, um, you know, we're going to fail on the first film. Yeah. Um, and we had got one uh, earlier Bushmaster that we just, which had been found on the road, which we just used for the head of the show, just for so you knew what a Bushmaster looked like. But we never sort of set out to say that we had caught that or anything like right, that. Right. We were out to look for one and we were really, really disappointed we're going to fail on the first film and um that afternoon it rained and then as it was going dark it stopped raining and i said to the director look let's break the kit again let's get out there and we rounded up everybody out of our team which was we we work with small the, the film crew is very small um unlike a lot of film crews natural history you need a small team right um but we 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 got other people from the village and things like this and we all just went out and searched in in the forest and we'd got a chap with us um from a company called neon neon rio and they were like fixers they were the people who sorted out our hotels um our our, our flights and everything so we didn't have to stress with all of that and also they would arrange local um permissions and things and he came out and he was quite a smart Rio de Janeiro lad, you know. He wouldn't get his, he wouldn't get dirty, you know. He's, <laughs> he, he's, he's, but he's, he's out with us, and he spoke perfect English. He, he'd grown up in 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 the US. Um, spoke English with a bit of an American accent, but Excellent. it wasn't his first language. And come midnight, on the last day, I'm thinking, well, I really hoped the rain would have brought something out. Right. And I'm just walking around the groups of the forest saying, we're going to pack it in. We're not going to find it. And I heard him shout me and he shouted Mark. And then he shouted to me in Portuguese. Sura cuckoo. 
saw a cuckoo and we all ran over to where he was and there was um, a sub-adult male Bushmaster backing up and getting onto a stump. Wow. And I looked to the Brazilian I was with who was my contributor and said, are you going to catch it or I'm going to catch it? Yeah, right. You catch it. <laughs> so I said, okay. And then he caught it. <laughs> but I didn't care. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It was there. You were there. I mean, That's a my hell contributors of a story. used to look to me and say, Have I got to catch you? You're gonna I don't care. If we're looking, if we're we're working as a team. Yeah. If not whether I personally am the person who 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 okay. That's not the point. We're we're one as long as one of us gets it. This happened with a a small crock in 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 the, in Mauritania, and Hema Nickel said to me, "Shall I catch?" I said, "You're closest. You catch it." Yeah, or the, or the you know that, that, that's, that's the one not, Don't, don't wait Guinea. for me to come over. I'm not some sort of like you're not. That's prima donna sort of thing. But anyway, <laughs> we did get it. We got it at half past midnight, and Incredible. we had to get back and pack everything up and get no sleep and ready for the flight out the next day, and. We were over the moon. And then for Dean Reaper to publish in the bulletin of the Chicago Herpetolo Herpetological Society that we had staged it. What a cheek. A shame. Yeah. But you got it. And it's an iconic story. Yeah, it was. It was, And it, and it said that we didn't then fail on a film till number seven. And that was Costa Rica. And that was Splendid Leaf Frog. And we, we, we heard them call and then it rained and it stopped. They stopped calling and we didn't get that. And the director was really downcast about that. And, and I said, look, Roger, you've got to fail sometimes. That's life. Yeah. Um, just not on the one you're working on at that time because it never <laughs> sits well. But we, we, got to, we got to film nine and then we, we failed on, on the Splendid Leaf Frog with Andy Gray from the Manchester Museum. And at the end of that... Because Andy Gray needed them for the the project at the Manchester Museum, um, he'd got collectors out, and they'd been to somewhere where we couldn't get the film crew, and they caught a pair, and they brought them in, and the morning that we're finishing, there's these two beautiful splendid leaf frogs, excellent, um, and I held them up and showed them to the camera. And I said, "This is what we were looking for. We didn't find any." But some collectors have found a pair for Andy Gray, so the project that he's working on can continue. It's just that we didn't find them because honesty is important. Yeah, a thousand percent. Incredible. That's awesome. So, any other particularly memorable venomous encounters in South America? Yeah, the southernmost snake in the world, the Patagonian landshead. Oh, wow. oh man, let's hear now, it. I'd done a film. Well, I mean, <laughs> how can I? I nearly missed out there talking about Golden Landsheads on Ilya Kamada Grand, but I'll come back to that. <laughs> we'll come yeah. back to that. Um, I knew I knew Marcio Martins um, for a long time because um, when I did the work in Brazil in the eighties, I passed the frog specimens to him, and he wrote the all the frogs. I'm not as good on frog taxonomy would well, certainly not um, compared to snakes. So he did all that, all of that. And we'd corresponded quite a lot and there's a lot of mutual respect. And he was one of the contributors on the, um, 
the Golden Lancehead film, which was Lost Worlds. Um, and when he heard um, we were going to Argentina to look for the Patagonian Lancehead, he was very interested because he'd done work on a similar the snake that in 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 um, in Brazil that occupies the same niche is Bosrops idipatingae, and he'd done work on them, and he would be really like to see what their Brazilian counterpart was like. So I spoke to the director and said, "Can we take Marcio with us?" And so we did. We took him with us, and um, we're on this winds. We're on the the Peninsula Valdez looks like a mushroom growing out of Argentina into the Atlantic Ocean. Now you'll picture it easily on a map. And that's, that's not as far south as they go. They go further south, but obviously they become harder and harder to find. And we had already spent a lot of time around Buenos Aires State and a number of other states um, in northern um Argentina, which were within the range of um, uh, the uh, Patagonian land said. But the range is vast. It covers the entire Patagonia, which is just immense. And of course, like any snake of this sort, they're going to be patchy and they're going to be in certain areas. If you think about viper distribution, they're not evenly spread. They tend to be centered and finding those centers is the hard thing. And we'd been singly unsuccessful again until we got down to Peninsula Valdez and we were unloading the vehicles. And it was a, it was a, a really nice scene you, that I could, there was, there's all, we're right on the coast. There's lots of rocks. There's penguins on the rocks. You can see the Atlantic ocean and I just left them on sorting gear and I just thought I'm going for a walk. And I walked up the coast and it was just like walking up the Welsh coast. Although <laughs> we don't have penguins in Wales, of course. No, not so much. Not penguins or uh, puffins maybe, but not penguins, but I'm walking along and it was quite like being at home, the temperature and everything. And I thought, now if I was looking for vipers on the Welsh cliffs, what would how would I go about it? And I thought to myself, well, probably I'd look for where there's an abundance of prey. So where I'm not seeing lizards, I wouldn't bother. I'd move to where I did see lizards. So I applied that and I was walking around. And I started to see Leolimus. And these are the this is the biggest genus. I think is in Latin America, there's over 300 species of Leolimus. There's probably even more than that now because they've been described all the time. A lot of them are Andean, but a lot of them aren't. A lot of Patagonian. And I started to see a fair number of those. So I thought, right, I'm going to work now and think about looking for vipers, how I would do that. And blow me, I found a female Patagonian landshead. Wow. And I'm going, wow, I found a female here. Waving to the crew, come and see the female. And everyone's just just blown away, you know. And um, Marcio, he just thought, this is tremendous. So he set off and he found a male. Wow. And then some hours later, I found a juvenile. Fantastic. And that was it. No more. That's so amazing. You, you've, you have to think, how would I best 
search. Um, moving back, because I know you're going to, 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 to the Golden yes. Lambsheads. That was a trip. Yeah. Um, Ilike Murder Grand is not easy to get to. We had three attempts. With two attempts by boat. The first time it was too rough to go anywhere. We were out at sea and it was terrible when we came back. The second time we got out to the island and went round it, but it was too rough to safely land. So we had to go back. So that we decided we'll hire a helicopter. Wow. As you do. Yes. And But while that was being sorted out, we thought, well, we'll go to Alcatraz's. Now, this isn't the one in California. This is Al Alcatraz's means booby, which is oh, okay. seabirds. Right. And um, this is there's a there's um, a Bothrops on there. And I went with Marcio. From, he's from the University of Sao Paulo and uh, a bunch of guys from um, the Institute of Butantan, uh, especially Kiko Franco, who's a ho, 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 great laugh. Tremendous guy. Lovely man. And we, we, we so. And we were going to go to um, Kamada Grand, but while that's been set up, we went to Alcatraz's. And there's a pit viper there that they're going to describe as a new species. So they set off, the Brazilians, they set off to look for the, 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 snake, the snake. Why we, why we called this Lost Worlds was because when you got onto these islands, there were no mammals. Um, the things you saw mostly were frigate birds and other big, aggressive-looking seabirds that could be pterodactyls, um, and giant spiders and things like that. There's, it was it was quite a primeval-looking place, and the Brazilians had gone off to look for the the um, the pit viper that they wanted more specimens of to describe. And I couldn't go straight away because the cameraman wanted to play with a, a new kind of camera, which was he called a lipstick camera, which uh, going a headband around and over my ear. Well, now, you know, this sort of stuff is like you do it with um, a GoPro, but they didn't exist 20 yeah. years ago, yeah. over 20 years ago. So he's, he's rigging this lipstick camera up and I've got this hunking great big unit it feeds into in my backpack. And it like takes 20 minutes, half an hour to get all this and test it and run it and see, see what we've got. And I'm itching to go snake hunting, but I'm being all rigged up for this. So that's all sorted. And I set off off this flat rock, which was our base right by our boat. Oh, and I should tell you that um, Ilya Alcatraz is, is actually um, the Brazilian Navy use it for artillery practice. And we'd asked them not to for two days while we're there <laughs> um and they, they'd kindly said that they wouldn't shoot at us <laughs> those are big bullets <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway it's a shame that they're using something like that maybe they're not now because there's an endemic vi pit viper on there um but anyway we i set off and i remember going over this big rock hopping across a little bit of seawater onto a flat rock and then I walked up into the start of the forest. And as I walked up into the start of the forest, there were two palm trees that seemed to almost have a common base and were leaning away from each other like a large V. And as I got around the back, there was an awful lot of debris in that V that had fallen, bits of palm front and all bark and all sorts of stuff. And I got my snake hook 
and I've got this camera running, I've got this snake hook, and I just folded out some of this material and this piece of palm frond that was like, you know what, they're, they're often uh, hollow, you know, hollow, so it looks like a tube, well, half of a tube. And that dropped down and into it slid the soon-to-be-named Bothrops Alcatrazzi. Wow, that's, that's incredible. I found one in under 10 minutes. On the first flip. On the first flip. <laughs> and the Brazilian lads, when they came back, fair play, they'd be working hard, but they hadn't got one. I've got you one, guys. Here you go. <laughs> I got described a few years later. So, that, but we did get to, to, to Camada Grande, and they're not lying when they say that place is alive with golden lads heads. I, I, I counted how many I saw in a little over an hour, and it was 16. Wow. And they were on the ground and they were in the trees. And basically, don't put your hand anywhere without looking first. Yeah. I think there has been a bite now. One of the researchers who works out there has been bitten. Um, it's because it's, it's, it's very, very toxic. And it's very toxic because it feeds on birds. On the mainland, the pit vipers, just think of any average pit viper. It sits there in ambush, nice warm furry goes past it whacks it one sits back stab and release bite resets his fangs looks at its watch and goes yeah it should be about dead by now then it crawls after it and eats it if you're feeding on birds you can't do that because there's nothing to track because a bird's going to go flutter flutter up in the air you've got a gap so you're not going to be able to track so they've got to hold on to their prey they've got longer fangs apparently i'm i don't know how true that is and more toxic venom because they because you've got feet and beaks and wings going they've got to subdue their prey very very quickly and and so that makes perfect sense and they're supposed to be i think three times more toxic to mammals than anything on the mainland and five times to birds wow if those stats are right but 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 they you know they are the reputedly the most venomous snake from Crotlus oridus down to uh, Bothrops uh, amadioides. Wow, and definitely the most toxic of all the Bothrops Bothriacus. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. That. although you don't know what you might find on other islands where you've got the same in, yeah. uh, same uh, environment. I mean, um, little um, rattlers rattlesnakes are feeding on birds. They're having to hunt them at night, hence they don't want the rattle because it's like a bell round a cat's neck. Yeah, so. Um, if they're taking birds at night and they're not very big snakes, what's their toxin like? Yeah. Has yeah. there been on the goldens? Has there been many observations of predation in the wild, uh, in terms of is it a strike and release and the bird just kind of falls over, or are they holding on? I, 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 I think they hold on to them, okay. but don't take my word for it. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure because the 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 Brazilians have been studying them for a long time, right. both. Um, people like Marcio out of Institute, um, the uh, Universidade de Sao Paulo and um, um, Kiko Franco and his colleagues. Uh, and there's a, there's a good group of herpetologists uh, at Instituto Butantan. So they, they, you know, I would think that observational studies are a big part yeah. of what they do. So, yeah, I, I would think there is. Yeah, there was a guy who had a bunch of trail cams on something from Butantan and 
there was no actual observation. It was just like the snake would slither past the camera and that was it. <laughs> so yes. but those guys are really working hard. I know they are. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's yeah, but if you don't get any results for a long time, when you do get the results, it makes them even sweeter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Success and failure are two sides of the same coin. And to truly appreciate the one, you have to taste the other. Yeah, for sure. 100%. So I'm going to take you from South America now. Let's oh, travel. Let's travel around. What about uh, India, Indian subcontinent? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Which, which, well, of course, I caught King Cobras down in, down in the Western Ghats. Um, and uh, I've spent a lot of time on, on Sri Lanka. Um, I, I, I remember tangling my feet up and falling into some brushwood and I'm picking myself up in Shranka and I thought I saw a snake's tail. So I got up carefully and yeah, it was uh hypnali. and I moved where I'd fallen and I found five. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, found five of I just fall. I just throw myself into these hypnali. They'll break my fall for me. <laughs> They've got they've got quite a pokey venom that's that can affect your kidneys. It's not something to get tagged by, but yes, I mean I've caught lots of cobras, Russell's vipers, um, um, some crates, but you don't see as many of those. But lots and lots of cobras. And and when we went to the up to um, it's, it's Odisha province now. It was Orissa province in northeast India. Um, we were looking for king cobras in the Bitacarnica swamp there. And people told me that they, they nested in the trees. And I, I thought, I've got to see a snake that can gather leaves together in a tree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we, di we didn't, we found very few snakes. I found myself chasing more monitor lizards in mud or rather standing still while the monitor lizards ran away. But one incident there. There's the river. Um, it's not a snake story, unfortunately, but the, the river converges, and on the mud bank, there's a really humongous saltwater crocodile. And he's supposed to be like the saltwater crocodile in that area. And when you come up to up the river, he, he, there he is, and he sits there, and you know, if you want to mess with me, sort of thing. And he slid into the water, and the director said, Let's follow him. And I was saying, Really? We're in a bloody canoe. We're, we're in a dugout canoe type thing. It's about as wide as you can sit down. You can't, you can't turn round. There's, and it's long. And it's the kind of thing that you'd only have to do three rocks and it's upside down. And he wants us to chase the biggest saltwater crocodile in the area in it. And yeah, he did. He did. He wanted us. So we're following this saltwater crocodile and it disappeared. And he was very disappointed because he'd got the cameraman filming it. And I looked over my shoulder. Yeah, it had disappeared. Either it had disappeared or there were two of them because we were now being followed. And I thought, this is not a good situation to be in. You'd only have to nudge the damn thing. We found a, a um, we came across, a, it's in the film, I think, a, um, a cow that had obviously drowned and fallen into the river. And this bloated cow is going downstream and it's doing this up and down, pulled under, coming up again. I thought, that's not the water current. That's crocodiles. Yeah. It's, it's a big croc up there. 
and when I travel, I traveled across the north of India and we, it, the, the Indian train system is very efficient. It's always on time. They do not stop, even if all the people on the roof fall off. It's very efficient. And we're on the train um, and there was, a, there was an army regiment, Indian army regiment on the train or a battalion, uh, quite a few soldiers getting on. While we're on the platform, the colonel in charge with his lady recognized me, turned out to be a fan. He said, you must come and sit with me and tell me your stories. So I spent most of the journey across the north of India, sat with the, the, the colonel and his good lady wife, regaling him with stories in his private compartment on this train. That's which, awesome. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Start going back to the Raj, you know, it's really quite bizarre. Well, so other than the the pocket full of Hypnali in Sri Lanka, any any work with uh, Trigonocephalus? No, no. Um, I only saw one, and that was somebody else had caught, so I managed to just get photos. It's not a species that I could have any lay any claim to having really encountered, which is a shame because it is it is a it's a it is a beautiful pit viper. Yeah. Um, but sadly, no, it's not 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 on my not on my list thus far. Fair enough. That's my first venomous species. Was it? Yeah, inspired by photographs, probably from your book, I would imagine. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Yeah, it is a, it is a beautiful species. And, and just talking of photographs, I know we've spoken of this before, but I don't think people appreciate enough, when you look at older books, how good the photographs are, because yeah. they're not digital. Yeah. Yeah, and well... To take film photographs in a humid environment in the dark and not be able to just look at the back of your camera and see if you've got it or not. Yeah. Just think, I have such respect for some of the old photographs. There's there's a a very important word. It's called bracketing. You shot everything on different settings. Yeah. Um, I did that all through Big Adventure. All my pictures, I was shooting film. I had two identical film outfits each in a pelican case um identical camera bodies identical cam macro canon macro 100 mil macros identical mets flash guns and the one was the red camera the other was a green camera they had dots colored dots on them i never mixed anything never swapped anything over they stayed completely separate i had i would go on a shoot with 50 or 60 films of kodachrome 64 or latterly Velvia 100, which was expensive and expensive to process. And I would shoot everything on both cameras and I would bracket and shoot everything at different settings because you don't know what you're getting. Um, And if one camera had developed a fault and you got back and you'd got like 200 quid worth of film had gone through that camera, but nothing was any good, you just hoped that the 200 quid that had gone through the other camera was. You couldn't cover all bases. You weren't going to take a third outfit. You know, it wasn't guaranteed. But that's what you had to do. And um, then I would have to process my films. And then it was always heart-stopping when I went to pick them up, start to go through them. And I have got a whole room of file cab- uh, slide cabinets upstairs with all my slides in. And I've still got 
um, 200 films that, has, that I haven't actually been out from working in Timor that I haven't actually yet been able to, to find the time to catalogue. Um, that are processed and waiting to be catalogued. 200 films of 36 wow. exposures each. Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, and it took me a long time to move on to digital because the first digital, I tried digital and I had a Canon D30. Now that's not a 30D, that's a D30. It's a totally different piece of kit. It was shit. <laughs> yeah, it was shit. I couldn't. I, I, I that's our Canon sponsorship blown now. Yeah, it's yeah right. well, yeah. Well, their can their cameras are marvelous now. I use them all the time. Oh, I, I love. In fact, my work. What I say, I say to somebody, Do you, are you Nikon or Canon? And if oh, they man. go, I'm Nikon. I go, Canon MPE 65 mil. Look it up. Well, you can I, shoot I, five times life size. And I said to Canon, if I put a times two converter on this, can I go 10 times life size? They said, no, because there's an element in the front that'll hit the element. Of the no, you can do it. I do it. I've stood wow. there and photographed in a swamp in Timor, ant mimic ants, predating um, green ants. And I've stood there and I've filled the frame with the ant. Handheld, illuminated with a twin light and get great photos but only because I'm shooting digital now and I can see what I've got. Back then, you didn't know what you got. You didn't even know if you are in focus. Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah. yes, I, I lived it. I, I've been doing that sort of photography since the 80s. And, but when I had that D30 and discovered how rubbish it was, that, 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 that put me off digitals for a lot longer than it should have. And it, I was... I, you, you know, I was a hard, it was hard to convert me to digital, but when I did convert um, and stop using, I've still got my Canon cameras, the film camera, I moved, got rid of the lenses, but I still got the camera bodies. My Canon F1s, they're bronze, um, no, brass covered in black. I mean, though, that you could fight your way out of a bar. <laughs> That's good, man. <laughs> I've, I've forgotten which cat. Where were we? We're we back. Were, we're Western Ghats. We're Western oh, Ghats. right. Western Ghats. Western yeah, Ghats. nothing so dangerous in the Western Ghats. Oh, um, I'll tell you about Sri Lanka. Um, we're driving, we're looking for Bush, uh, for, um, we're looking for Russell's Vipers in, um, in Sri Lanka. And I've caught Russell's Vipers now in Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Thailand, and Indonesia. But, in in um, in Sri Lanka, you know how you just know when you see something up at night on the road. You just oh, know. Yeah. We're sure. road cruising, and this little piece of white appeared from the, the, the verge way ahead and dropped back. And I said, there's a Russell's Viper up there. And, they, and the crew don't believe me. I said, there is a Russell's Viper up there. And I jumped out of the vehicle. And my head torch came loose. So I'm, I'm running with that in my hand. I've got a snake hook. And I jumped down into this ditch right where it's in the white. Pinned down. Russell's Viper. I mean, wow. you know, I'd seen it. I'd seen just its supralabials <laughs> and just knew just enough what it was. Just knew what it was. And, and I was so chuffed to get that. What, now, what's, what I, I want to ask about the Russell specifically is that, uh, especially in the Sri Lankans, so we see, especially in, in American herbiculture, 
we see Sri Lankan Russells imported from time to time, and they, they fetch a pretty penny. But they're very, they're very Indian in appearance to me. The ones that you found in Sri Lanka were they more Siamensis looking, or were they no? Still they weren't Siamensis looking. No, that, like creamy, extra extra marks on the side and okay. so forth. No, nothing like Siamensis. Um, there's, there's a degree. I mean, from all the ones I've seen in Sri Lanka, there's a degree of variation in the patterning, but it's not a Siamensis patterning. Right. Um, there used to be uh, Pulchella, I think, subspecies, but none of those are valid now. There's there's no sub same as none of the subspecies that would now fall into Siamensis are valid. You know, the one, the two from Indonesia, the one from Taiwan, yeah, um, the one from um, mainland. Um, I mean, the, the Siamensis population is very fragmented. There's a there's a Myanmar population, there's a Thai population that isn't linked to it. There's a little population up in mainland China near near Hong Kong. You've got Taiwanese population. Um, you've you've got a uh, uh, Javanese population, and then there's a population down in the, in the Lesser Sundas on the Inner Bandarak. Um, yeah. I've seen them around Komodo, but they're also, I think, on Flores and so forth. And it. You know, it's where the habitat exists. I mean, long time in the past, the distribution would have been contiguous, but but they they're not really tropical, and so where it's wetter or anything like that, they they're not found, and so you get these little ref, relictual pockets of 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 them. And the the, the population in in um, South Asia is much more, I would say, contiguous, but for the fact that Sri Lanka is an island, right. Um, but there is considerable variation in the venom. Um, we ascertain that there's potentially four ways that a Sri Lankan Russell's viper can kill you that aren't addressed by the Indian antivenom, which is why Sri Lanka needs an antivenom, yeah. which is why hats off again to Institute of Clodomiro Picado in San Jose, University of San Jose in Costa Rica, because those guys are producing antivenom for Sri Lanka. And Africa, and they did a Taipan antivenom for New Guinea, and yeah. they are the they. If, if you were looking for a hero of um, in 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 snake bite, look no further than the Institute of Clodomiro Picado, ICP. Yeah. Were they the first to produce a mainstream lifealized or no? Um, I don't know. I don't know that. Okay. I mean, I can't talk about um, the history, um, but they 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 produced antivenoms for Costa Rica um, because Costa Rica began to have a snake bite problem. Dan Jansen sort of stopped a lot of the forest being cut down, but where areas were cleared, you started to get snake, you started getting issues with terciopelos um, and snake bites started to increase. And then they started producing antivenom for the whole of Latin America. And then they started producing antivenom for, you know, the whole of South America as right. well. And then you see, they're not a, they're not a biopharma, big biopharma company that looks at the bottom line. There are companies like Pasteur and Beringwerk that used to produce antivenom that have dropped out of doing it because they can make a lot more money from obesity drugs and heart disease drugs and cancer drugs because they'll sell them to the West because we've got the money to pay for them. Snake bite is prime. Oh, you've got me on my you've got me on my hobby horse now. Snake bite is a disease of the poor people who don't have a voice in 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 um, developing countries, right. and those countries often can't afford to spend much on antivenom. And and therefore, the big biopharma companies are less interested in it um, yeah. because they're not going to make a lot of money. I personally think they make uh, plenty of money from from other drugs. So they they could do a little bit for humanity and produce drugs, um, antivenoms 
at a, a price that's affordable um, for, for developing countries. You know, it's it's death through snake bite is horrible, and um, it very rarely happens to one of us. Touch wood. Um, but it does happen on a regular basis um, in, in, in tropical countries to people who were not planning to pick up a snake that day, yeah. but accidentally stepped on it. So, yeah, yeah. so I, I've, I, I've gone way, way off kilter. But you get me talking about snake bites, I'll talk. I, I'm afraid I th- I, it's, it is a hobby of mine. And I, I think that in, a, in the 21st century, we should, be, we should be doing a hell of a lot more about it. Agreed. Agreed. Hundred percent. So I'm going to take you from India. What about Europe? Anything in Europe? Yeah, I, I, for a long time I didn't go to Europe except to conferences and things. Um, but I have. I've had some very. You see, one of the things about being in in my situation as sort of well known is that herb societies go. Well, let's get Marco Shea over to do some talks again to speak at the conference or whatever. And so I've been spoken quite a few. I mean, the Australians have done that. They 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 got me all the way up to Sydney to do an evening with Mark O'Shea, and I, I I spent all evening told them about did about four lectures. That went down so well that the guys in Melbourne got me over a couple of years later, you know. And it's just great. So when I've been to Europe, um, we've managed like whether I've been there to open an exhibition or to do some museum work or, or a conference. It's been a chance to go out with the local herpers. And there's nothing better than going out with local guys who are proud to show you their snakes in their favourite habitats 100%. and then go and have uh, a few a few beers, sit down and just chew the fat, tell war stories. And so I've, I've had a great time like that um, in Croatia, um, uh, and a couple of other countries like that, whereas when we went to Greece, a group of us arranged a little trip to Greece for four days to see what we could find, and we found 29 Ottoman vipers. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it's uh... yeah, so that was a photographic trip, you know, and we did that in Spain as, as well. We, we got um, a task viper and things like that. So, And, and uh, when we arrived in Spain near Madrid, we said, Right, what should we do? Should we go herping or go to the pub? And herping got the vote. So we went herping. And I think we got 14 species of herps. And we got all of the groups. We got snakes, lizards, turtles, amphisbenians, um, um, neurons, and um, salamanders. Wow. Wow. So we, we ticked all six boxes, right? No tuataras, no crocodiles, um, so no Sicilians. Um, so the rest of that stay, we're only there about three days. We only notched up another four species because we'd done so well on the first night. That's it's always the way though. You have a, you have a blinding first day, and then you have a sparse second day, or you're just finding the same over and over. Yeah, it's still good. It's great. To it's be still good anyway. because you're getting diversity. Yeah. And you're getting you're getting the male, the female, the juvenile, and they're all worth photographing. Yeah, the Otto, the Ottoman viper is one of my favourite European snakes. I've seen it uh, again in Greece. I yes. was I was about to go to Zamos in a week's time, but we cancelled it because the weather's just too ridiculous there. But um, I'll go out uh, in May. Yeah, they'll all be all be underground. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's way too hot at the minute. Unseasonally hot. 
Um, but I will go back out and try and get some pictures for the, the Zamos ones. I really want to photograph. Yeah, that, that it's, it's. I mean, the size of that thing. It's 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 like an adder on steroids. Yeah, it's. I would not want to take a bite off one of the no. size size of the heads are huge. Very impressive. Yeah, they have are. You, have you seen Blunt Nose Viper? Um, no, not not in the wild so far. No, um, okay. no, because. I've not been to Turkey. Oddly, I've not been to Turkey. Maybe one day. And that's yeah. a good place to go go for those. And I've not been to Milos either. If 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 we'd carried on and done another season of Big Adventure, I would have liked to have done a European one. And the executives are going, Europe? What's interesting about Europe? I said, well, all the young Americans and Australians come to Europe 100%. in their teen years because they're attracted to Europe. And we could have done a big adventure and and in, and it would have had also the cultural side of all of these different countries, you know, a yeah. bit of the culture. And, you know, it would have been more than just finding the herbs. But of course, we never we didn't get a fifth of it. Fifth season. So what would you what would you have gone for? Um, oh, well, I'd have been largely driven by vipers, obviously. Because that is the showcase uh, group, but um, a lot of, I'd like to have gone for some of the a lot of the island species in the Mediterranean that are endemics and things like that. But it would vipers would have been the driving force. Yeah, I, I recently did uh, a trip to Milos to photograph the vipers there, and just fabulous. They're really really cool. And yeah, I I could... fortunate enough to uh, to find blunt nosed viper on Cyprus as well. Were you? Yeah. Well, you see, I I know I know that Europe is your. You you photograph as soon as we finish describing Europe, you have to go and find and photograph it, don't you? I do. I've only got yeah. two things left now, so. Yeah. So so it's it's. I should be interviewing you about Europe. Well, you you were you were you were kind enough to put my photographs in your book. That'll do. <laughs> you know, second edition of um, Chicago University Press are publishing the second edition of um, the Book of Snakes. Oh, coming out and which um, must take some work because it was published in what 2018. That's surprisingly long time ago. We just don't realise that because co with COVID yeah. we didn't have any milestones, so it's all compressed and you know it's hard. It's not like you don't remember events. Therefore, yeah. it's so it, it's 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 five years ago, and um, there's been two new families described since then: the Psychocoridae and the Michelapidae. And of course, the Milos Viper is now in is now in with the Blunt Nose Viper. It's been synonymized. So I'd got them a separate spread. So I've had to change that. So I ended, and of course, there's been lots of taxonomic changes, moving species across genera and things like that. Um, so it meant a major reorganization of the 600 species. 600, yeah, 600 spreads, 600 species. And um, I've had to do, I've added, I think we take now to about 18 and put about 18 in. And I've had to go through and I've updated all the, where I've said there are five species in this genus and there are now seven. I've done that and I've gone through and updated the whole shebang. Wow. That's and, that's, and, and I believe that may be Novemberish. Okay. Wow. Now I, I know we've, we've, We've migrated over to to Europe, but I for speaking of all this taxonomic revision, 
I wanted to ask you about your revision with uh, Boigo, excuse me, Boiga Maculata, uh, Molto Maculata, Molto and, Maculata, uh, yeah, and Acrasia, the tawny cat. I can't remember the species name. Acrasia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was that came out of work when I was in, I was in Myanmar with um, Gunther Kohler from the Senckenberg at Frankfurt, Frankfurt, um, Germany. And we were, I, I was there to catch front fanged um, snakes for the anti-venom production program in Myanmar. Um, and I, I was getting uh, Mandalayensis and Kuthia and Alba Labris and um, another Trimerosaurus, um, Erythrorus I got as well. And, and um, obviously Siamensis and, oh, and, and uh, one, one Bungarus fasciatus. So I was primarily doing that, but I'm also interested in reptiles and amphibians outside of the, obviously the, 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 the medically important ones. So we're working together a lot and we're catching quite a few interesting species. And we got, we got, um, Multimaculata, we got Acrasia and we got Cyanae. And, um, uh, Gunther's obviously preserving specimens for the, the Senckenberg and taking tissue samples and so forth. And when we were back, because, uh, I mean, Myanmar then went to hell in a handbasket, didn't it? The generals kicked off again. Oh, yeah. Um, he got in touch with me. He said, you're not going to believe it, but we've run the, the tissue samples and Acrasia and Multimaculata are, are the same snake. It's polymorphic. And whichever name is the older is the one that then has priority. And right. that was Multimaculata. Um, and so we started to work on that. And with Frank Tillak from the Berlin Museum and a number of other authors, some Asian authors who were collecting material um, in, in, I think, four different Asian countries. Um, and so this very long, it was a long, long project came together. To, to look at the whole group. And it was determined in actual fact that yes, Acrasia was in Multimaculata, but could be a, a subspecies. And it was it was it was Multimaculata was um could be too too polymorphic. Subspecies Multimaculata could be polymorphic. And Acrasia, I'm trying to remember if that could be polymorphic or just the one colour. But there was a third subspecies which we then described Right. Um, Centrionalis, I think we called it. I, I just remember at the moment because they were different enough to be subspecies, but not full full species. And we revalidated Stolitskaya, um, which is an interesting species that was named um, for a Czech herpetologist who died of altitude sickness in the Himalayas many years ago. And that's um, the third Boiga. No, that's that's another that's a separate species that we validated, oh, okay. which have oh, been okay. in as a subspecies. Oh, okay. but honest to God, the paper I I wrote the the history of these species, and if you pick up the paper, you need to be concentrating when you read it because it is so complex, um, and how um, different people had named the same species at diff at slightly different times, or who published first. There was so much intrigue in it that it was, it was, it's what uh, Hinrich Kaiser and I call forensic historical herpetology. When you're really looking back 
at the old historical records and working out where somebody was at a certain time. Certain there was there was one British colonel, and I've, off the top of my head, I think it might have been Bedomi, but he claimed to have collected these specimens in Myanmar, but there was no record of him ever being in Burma, which it was at the time. Right, right, right. And you know, people people didn't keep good records, and you're trying to you're trying to. It's like it's like a massive whodunit in 3D. Yeah. And and just the history section of this paper took me forever. And then Frank, who also is a Frank Tillak's a huge bibliophile, and he'd got a lot of records and quite a lot's in German and so so we were just put all this together. And and I'm very pleased with the paper. But yes, Crasia is is synonymized, but it, it remains as a subspecies. And multimaculata we normally talk about multimaculata and there's a bunch of species this is the only multimaculata and it should have been multimaculata but in the original description it was misspelled all the way through therefore you can't change it wow because when dowdin described the american alligator he called it alligator mississippiensis but with only one p and it took 30 years for that to get corrected wow Wow. So, you know, there's a lot more to the nomenclature of of, uh, of zoology and herpetology than, than the average person probably realizes. That's why I find it fascinating. Actually. Absolutely. I I'm spend a lot of time in old papers working yeah. things out. Yeah. I just I saw that, you, you know, you at Al had uh, uh, put something together this past year, this year, I should say, 2023. And I figured I'd bring it up because you know Nipper and I are big Boiga fans, and yeah, I was. Those, I, get, I used to keep loads yeah. of Boiga. Um, those two snakes I, don't look anything alike, so <laughs> no, they don't. But yeah. they are. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they do look alike if you took the color away and the patterning. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, all right, Corallus, uh, Corallus ortulanus. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I when I was working on the project in Brazil for seven months. There was one area where I, I could walk down the main trail where Corallus hortulanus was hanging about um, catching um, bats at night. And I collected five or six different color phases. I yeah. collected ones that looked like a crasia. I collected ones that were bright orange. I collected ones that were very black. And I collected ones that looked like multimaculata. In fact, you could have put them next to each other and you'd, you'd have had a green tree python, emerald tree boa scenario. Yeah. So we're used to that species being poly, polymorphic. I should say, actual fact, polychromatic. Polymorphic means different shapes, but also includes dichromatic. It's like sexual dimorphism, sexual dichromatism. Dichromatism is more specific. It's about the color. So polychromatic, if you like. Um, we're used to that. And if you start thinking about it, there are other species that we're used to having different color forms in them. We don't think twice about it. So you shouldn't really find this that strange that's a good point it's a good point squamagera for crying out loud <laughs> yeah yeah all right i'm gonna make a suggestion if it's okay i really want to talk to mark about papua new guinea yes in detail yes and i really want to talk to him about some of the outlaying islands flores and stuff like that yes but we've been going for nearly two hours we can do we can part can two we, can we do a part two? Because we can. I love this, man. I, I love talking herbs. 
Yeah, yeah. But no, that's no problem. That would be great. And we've got to talk eight track Daspis. Absolutely. Oh, do Absolutely. we have to? We have to. This is a this is a this is a monumental occasion for me to have not only you as always, but Mark O'Shea. I got to talk to him about stilettos. Oh my yes, days. yes. It's one of the silly buggers that's got bit twice by him. He'd been bitten by them. Yes. Oh my days. We have to do a big bit ah, of that as well. That's yes. all you got to do. If you want, if you want Nipper to talk to you about your sand boas, just tell <sighs> him that one went for your jugular and he's there. It's true. It is true. I'll be all over that. That's brilliant. So we're going to come back. With, I mean, Mark, I could literally listen to him for weeks and weeks and weeks. I think it's just amazing. Totally I'm on cloud nine right now. 100%. So we will come back. We're going to talk about dirt snakes if we have to. We're going to talk dirt about... Dirt snakes, definitely. I'm looking forward to that T-shirt. If you can get that over to me before the conference, I'll wear it at that as well. Done. You'll, you'll get a T-shirt, 100%, and a, a Venom Exchange Radio T-shirt Absolutely. As well. We're on it. Um, in, as we say around here. Uh, but we need to talk in depth about Pac-Man New Guinea. Yeah, we do. I also want to talk to you about places like Timor and Flores. Timor, and we've done a lot there. of work there. Yes. Yeah, um, Komodo Island, obviously, that, that sort of area, because uh, Insularis is one of my favourites. Yes. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely catch up with you. Thank you so much for tonight. It has been absolutely amazing. Always a, a well, real genuine, genuine pleasure to talk to you. I do not, love this. I mean, not, you know, this, this, this is what communication was designed for. A hundred percent. But and, you know, you know, yeah. It, 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 you know, it spins me out that somebody, not wishing to make you feel old, but somebody <laughs> that I sat and watched as a youngster. I'm now having conversations with it just spins me out incredibly. But uh... let me just tell you then, when I was on Carker Island going out to catch Mikropeki Zikahika, I had two Papuan assistants. One of them was a heavy set Papuan lad. He was probably as broad as he was tall. He got a big, bushy black beard. We're setting off to go and catch Mikropekis. And of course, all the kids follow me. I'm like the Pied Piper. And I turned to him. I said, Peter, Peter, we're going after poison snake. It's not good to have the children chase them back to the village. So he chased all the kids back to the village. <laughs> His big beard and everything. And he caught me up about 10 minutes later. And he said, you know, when you first came here, I was one of the you chased back. To <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I've, yeah been, I've been around a while. Yeah, he's, he's still looking good for it. He's still looking good for it. Thank you very much. I I, I plan to keep going as long as it's possible. Yeah, do that. That'd be that'd be very cool. So, Phil, thank you very much. Thank you. Indeed. It wasn't so much of a pleasure to talk to you. I've got to be honest. I talk to you. <laughs> I talk to you all the time. But so, thanks for listening to part one uh, of our interview with Mark O'Shea. Mark has got such a phenomenal back catalogue of experiences and stories. We think. We will spoon feed you a little bit. Too much of a good thing in one sitting is not good for anybody. So thanks for listening to this. Join us again where we will hopefully have a part two to continue our round the world travels with the legend that is Mark O'Shea. Mm -hmm.